for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And of course, as a podcast, uh, just go to iTunes and uh, you can uh, search Your Financial Editor and uh, check out uh, this program or programs from the past if you want to re-listen or share them. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hope your weekend's going well and uh, looking forward to some uh, warmer weather next week and um, have a good program. We've got some deals to talk about, some top stories. A lot of earnings came our way this week, big names. So we'll take a look at those and see how well or how poorly uh, these companies fared. And then joining me in uh, just a little bit, my guest for uh, today, Mr. David Ditch. He's a a friend of the program. He's been on before and uh, really sharp when it comes to studying and researching uh, fiscal policy uh, budget issues, transportation issues, and did a real good piece uh, this week, uh, or actually it was a couple weeks ago now, uh, titled Nine Things You Need to Know About Biden's Infrastructure Spending Plan. Of course, if you know anything about it so far, it's just like the last COVID uh, bill. They said it was COVID-related, and it wasn't, or barely. It's just the same thing with the infrastructure. So we're going to pull that apart and see what's really going on, what's going to be rammed our way uh, as far as uh, infrastructure. So that's right around the corner as well. Um, As far as some deals that caught my attention this week, MasterCard said on Monday that they had agreed to buy digital identity verification company Akeda. This is a deal valued at about $850 million, and that's uh, as MasterCard, they're, you know, of course, they're a global payment processor, they're betting on a boom in demand for companies in the digital security space. So Ikeda's products allow businesses to separate fraudsters from legitimate customers during digital transactions and interactions like opening an online account or making digital payments. It operates in three industries, e-commerce, payments, and financial services. So uh, according to Ikeda, the chief executive officer, he put out a a couple comments. One was uh, the acceleration of online transactions has thrust global digital identity verification to the forefront as one of the biggest opportunities to build digital trust and combat global fraud. So hopefully that's going to work well, not only for the shareholders, but also uh, for people that are exposed to fraud and just those uh, real bad people out there that are trying to take advantage of you. Also, we saw this week, this is actually uh, off of something that we spoke about last month. Uh, Canadian National Railway made a roughly $30 billion topping bid for Kansas City Southern. So this is going to kick off a bidding war uh, for the railroad operator that has already agreed to a sale of another Canadian rival. But this Canadian National Railway offer um, represents about a 21% premium or about $5 billion to uh, the uh, Canada Pacific offer. That's a lot of money. So they're going to have a hard time 
um, getting that offer off the table, if you will. Uh, I think the board of directors are going to find themselves in an interesting position. But it just goes to show you Kansas City Southern, which is the smallest of the five major freight railroads in the United States, really plays a key role in U.S., Mexico, and Canada trade with a network across both countries. So, um, you know, we'll see, you know, how this works out. But again, this is new as far as that deal that was talked about uh, right here on the program last month. Uh, Biden is reportedly preparing a slate of new tax hikes to pay for this second phase of multi-trillion dollar spending plans. Uh, The tax proposal will likely be more controversial than the suggested levies on corporations that Biden laid out last month to try to pay for the first part of his proposal, which he can't, uh, no matter how, if he took all the tax money, he couldn't do it. Um, But that measure has already drawn criticism because it would raise the corporate tax rate from 28 percent, because right now it's at 21 percent. And it would also impose a higher global minimum rate on U.S. businesses. Scary words. And Janet Yellen's been talking about this garbage, and they're acting like they're all going to get together uh, for their little powwow and and make these uh, global agreements and uh, tax rates. And this is not something you want to see. President Trump got corporate tax from 35% all the way down to 21%. What happened? Corporations repatriated trillions of dollars that were sitting offshore because of the taxes, right? So the way they're trying to get around this is with this minimum tax that they're going to try to put in place on a global, uh, from a global standpoint. And hopefully that has no chance in heck of, uh, of occurring. Because if you're going to chase business out of the country, which is really, in essence, what's happening here, um, there's going to be, God willing, other places to go. As much as I hate to say it, I don't want corporations to leave. I was so happy when they started coming back in 2017, 2018, 2019. It was great. New factories were being built. Money was spent here in the United States on research and development. It was all good. People were making uh, money. Employment was at, uh, you know, the unemployment rate was at record lows, which we love to see. Um, And it didn't matter, again, you know, this whole thing with uh, class warfare and race warfare and all the nonsense that's going on now. When you looked at hard numbers, things that really matter, um, you know, they try to talk about the science all the time and they don't know that from heck in a handbasket what science is because they change their mind all the time and just make sure it's appropriate and supportive of what they're trying to do. But when you looked, it didn't matter if you were black or white or if you were a man or a woman or if you were a high school dropout or you had your PhD or anywhere in between, those employment numbers were either record or at 50-year numbers that we haven't seen it that good in 50 years. Those are facts. Those are hardcore numbers. So this, uh, you know, wanting to chase corporations out of the country, wanting to raise capital gains, double it. (laughs) 
Yeah, get ready for that, what that's going to do. So these guys are just setting up for epic failure for our country, um, and it's really a shame. And again, we'll be talking about this uh, wrongly titled infrastructure spending boondoggle in just a little bit. Now, we also have to deal with the nonsense with um, these corporations that are becoming political. And we talked about this a little bit last week with uh, my guest, Mr. David Almasi, where he had a little bit of Disney stock and at the shareholders meeting called in, uh, was able, because it was virtual, was able to say, I I would like to ask a question of the CEO of Disney. And he did. And the CEO uh, was totally caught off guard. His voice was cracking. He had a just a boilerplate or a template type answer, but it's really simple. There were two actors under Disney, a program at Disney, Mandalorian, and both of them in tweets used the word Nazi, which is a totally overword, uh, excuse me, overused word as far as I'm concerned. Remember, it used to be disenfranchised and then it was bullied. And now you've got all these racism and Nazi or whatever. So anyway, they both used Nazi in their tweet, but only one of them was fired. And that's because uh, she has some conservative stripes. So, uh, again, that's a fact. Uh, Those are the kind of things that we're seeing now. And we saw this week that some so-called religious leaders in Georgia called for a boycott of Home Depot because of Home Depot's silence and neutral position on Georgia's new voting laws. Now, other Georgia-based corporations like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola, you know, they've caved and they've been meeting with activists for weeks and they've issued statements opposing the voting laws. Coca-Cola hosted a meeting of several companies on, I think it was the like April 13th, the middle of the month, with Again, these so-called faith leaders. But Home Depot did not attend and was uh, pretty quiet on everything. Uh, You know, they didn't want to get involved. They didn't think it was necessary. So um, Home Depot was charged to have ignored a series of follow-up requests and has failed to speak publicly on the new law. This was according to the activists that were led by AME uh, Bishop Jackson. Jackson, And if you don't know what AME stands for, it's African Methodist uh, Church. So um, he, you know, basically was saying that, you know, they need to respond to us and really just do what we want them to do. It's It's extortion. That's all it is. And if anybody sees it for anything different, then they're as weak as the uh, the companies that are caving into it. So you've got more than 100 companies like the Apples and the Amazons and the Starbucks of the world who've declared their opposition to voting laws across the United States. Why? Why would you do that? What is your reasoning, factual reasoning? Everybody should be able to vote, which is what these laws are about. And every vote should be protected One man, one woman, one vote. It's simple. Not this nonsense that we've seen in recent past, especially with the cheating and the fraud and the manipulation. So thank goodness, good states that have good leadership in state legislatures 
Um, they're taking this bull by the horns and saying, we're going to make sure that this doesn't happen again, even if there is another under the, you know, the cover of COVID or whatever they want to call it. So um, I thought it was great. And Home Depot is still getting pushed back. And look, they just came out and said, hey, all we want is for our employees to have the best voting experience possible so that, again, they're not manipulated and that it's a free and fair election. It's it's simple, but, but that's common sense, and it's not in the narrative today of a lot of, uh, well, of none of the media and then, of course, um, so many of these uh, elitists because that's really what they are. You know, Coca-Cola comes out and does all these meetings and and bashes uh, Georgia, the state that they're based in, which I'm sure a lot of people would like to just kick them out. Um, and I'd love to hear shortly that they're going to move their headquarters. That would be great um, and make Georgia a better place. But, you know, on their earnings call on Monday, they avoided addressing all this stuff they're doing politically. So they didn't want to talk about it. A spokesperson for Coca-Cola said that the company has, quote, no additional comment, unquote, on the matter. They're cowards. That's that's all they are. They're cowards. And again, it's uh, they're afraid, just like you've got these governors and mayors and all these sissies that won't enforce law, uh, won't arrest people because they don't know what the mob response is going to be. So instead, they really just become an arm of the mob, if you will, because they enable. So um, we'll continue to watch and and talk about what these companies are doing and uh, what the the response is as well um, here on the uh, Your Financial Editor program. Our uh, latest um, complimentary takeaway is titled The Value of an Objective Opinion. Uh, So you can go to murrayfinancialgroup.com right there on the homepage. Uh, Go down about halfway down and you click on get my copy for your uh, immediate download to your email. And that is a complimentary uh, piece for you. Again, it's titled The Value of an Objective Opinion. was just talking about Coca-Cola's earnings. Uh, On the other side of this uh, quick pause, uh, we'll dive into earnings. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, just go to iTunes and um, you search Your Financial Editor, and it's available as a podcast for you. Uh, So I was talking right before we took a break 
Um, a lot of companies came out this week with earnings. I mean, we could spend a few hours just talking about earnings uh, this week. I'll just give you the 30,000-foot view um, of what some of the big companies had to say this week. IBM, they reported first quarter uh, results that topped analyst ex- estimate. And, um, you know, the company was saying uh, that they made a dollar seventy seven per share. That was much better than the dollar sixty nine uh, that was uh, anticipated. Strong performance this quarter in cloud, driven by increasing client adoption of their hybrid cloud platform and growth in software and consulting enabled them to get off to a a solid start for the year, according to the CEO uh, at IBM. So that was good to see. Uh, Also, Harley-Davidson, they came out and announced earnings for uh, first quarter that advanced from last year. So uh, they had a real nice number. I mean, their total earnings were $259 million in the quarter versus $69 million uh, in the first quarter of last year. So just a solid uh, blowout for uh, Harley as far as, uh, you know, when you're looking at their earnings. Coca-Cola, who I was just uh, ragging on, uh, and, of course, it was um, totally deserved, uh, they reported a 19% decline in profit for the uh, first quarter from last year. Their revenue was up about 5%. Uh, they were saying that their improved mergers, or excuse me, margins were offset by higher income taxes. So get ready for that to get worse. Couldn't happen to a better company. Um, and uh, then you look at Kansas City Southern, who we were talking about earlier in the deal space. Um, they basically said that uh, their first quarter profit and revenue uh, was a miss. So they cited several unique and challenging events, according to the CEO, but they did confidently confirm their full-year outlook. So that should be good news, uh, hopefully, for the railroad operator going forward. Halliburton, the big oil services company, swung to a first-quarter profit that actually beat expectations and revenue topped forecasts out there. Uh, Knight Swift, which is you see their uh, tractor trailers on the roads all the time, uh, actually, that was a merger that we talked about a few years ago here on the program. But Knight Swift Transportation reported their first quarter profit that rose above expectations. They raised their full year outlook. Their net income nearly doubled from a year ago. And that's really good to hear because we know that these are the men and women uh, driving these semis that are bringing us the things we need. They're a vital part of our supply chain. And we know how much commerce is moving across uh, the United States. So it was good to see that Knight Swift was making money. Uh, Verizon reported first quarter earnings that beat analyst forecast and revenue that topped expectations. So that was solid as well. So overall, as you can tell from just the, the highlighting of those companies, it was a Pretty good week. Pretty solid so far as far as the earnings go. The banks had good numbers for the most part a couple weeks ago. And we see some of these other companies that I mentioned. uh, And we'll continue to keep an eye on these companies as the earnings season rolls on over the next couple weeks. Really, uh, you'll see some heavy 
activity as far as companies reporting earnings. As far as the economic data of uh, this past week, there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, again, earnings was pretty much the um, the, the the headline stealer, if you will. But we uh, did see that the conference board came out and said that um, their leading economic index was up 1.3% in March to a reading of 111.6. So that was a solid number. All 10 components contributed in a positive way, according to um, one of the senior directors of economic research that I was reading their notes. And um, that's important for the leading economic indicator part of it because that is supposed to give us an idea as to um, what the economy is in store for the next three to six months in particular. So by seeing that index go up, that was a good sign. Um, We saw that Data released on Thursday from the Labor Department showed that 547,000 Americans filed for first-time unemployment benefits in the week that ended April 17th. And the previous week, those numbers were worse than originally reported. They were revised to show 10,000 more people um, filed initial jobless claims than what we were originally told. About 8 million fewer Americans are working right now than before the virus made its way here from China. So it's still just everybody was getting excited at 547,000 because it was less than what economists were predicting. That's foolish to get excited about a number that high. Uh, Continuing claims for the week that ended April 10th, 3.674 million. That was above the number that was expected. So easy on the cheerleading, please. There is a ton of work to be done, and a big headwind to that is overpaying people, paying them more not to work than to work. That's just stupid. And why they continue to want to do that is simple. It's just for power and control, right? We're back to where we were during the Obama administration where they just want to put a nipple on the top of this, the uh, Capitol building down there and have everybody uh, drink off of it, get addicted to it, not be able to take care of themselves any other way. Really a shame um, and totally embarrassing for uh, Americans, hardworking Americans that take pride in getting up and going out and earning their living and fighting the fight because it's not easy. You know, whether it's dealing with a bad boss or, you know, just a troubled project or whatever it might be, it's not easy. We've all known that forever. But daggone if, you know, there's fortunately tens and probably hundreds of millions of people that are embarrassed knowing that there are people that want to sit home and make money instead of going to work. Existing home sales uh, hit a seven-month low in March. Real simple. This is the same old story. Uh, It's back to inventory. So the number of contracts closed fell 3.7% month over month, according to the National Association of Realtors. 
Um, and when you listen to the uh, chief economist at the National Association of Realtors, he was saying that consumers are facing much higher home prices, rising mortgage rates, and falling affordability. So you still see this activity out there, but it is hard for the buyer, really hard. And for the seller, they got a big smile on their face because the median price for existing homes were up 17% year over year. So that is, uh, that's strong. But again, inventory, it's down 28% from where it was a year ago. Unsold inventory was at 2.1 month supply. So you're right around that historic low of supply, uh, and that's for keeping track of data all the way back to 1982 when I was looking into it. Uh, we heard from, well, we didn't, even, we didn't so much, I don't want to say we heard from Chairman Powell on this, but what happened was uh, Senator Rick Scott, the former governor, current senator, United States senator from Florida, sent a letter to uh, Chairman Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve. And Powell's answer to his questions and criticism was the U.S. economy is going to temporarily see what he called a little higher inflation this year as the economy strengthens and supply constraints push up prices in some sectors. But the Federal Reserve is committed to keeping any overshoot within limits is what his response to this letter from Senator uh Scott was on April the ele- or April the eighth. It was actually. So uh, Powell said, "We do not seek inflation that substantially exceeds two percent, nor do we seek inflation above two percent for a prolonged period." And this was again in response to this five-page letter uh, responding uh, to a letter from the the senator, and the senator was simply raising concerns about rising inflation, which we're seeing. And the Fed's bond buying program or quantitative easing, you know, where they're spending billions and billions of dollars every month in the financial markets. And they're also uh, using other tools to keep interest rates uh, extremely low. So uh, Powell was saying that they're fully committed to both legs of their dual mandate, which is maximum employment and stable prices. Hence the problem stable prices because if you have inflation because of all this money being printed and spent which we're going to talk about the so-called infrastructure uh which that's not what it is the infrastructure spending um but when you see all this it's you're going to have inflationary problems for sure so i do give uh senator scott credit for pushing the envelope he's been a, a critic of um of Powell and his policies. So he was actually just putting pen to paper and asking for a formal uh, response, and he got it. So that was good. What wasn't good was the Treasury Department on Monday. Uh, They've established a brand-new climate hub that's tasked with bringing the full force of the department. That's our department, by the way. We as taxpayers, we own the Treasury Department. Um, to tackle potential financial system risk posed by climate change. So a former senior, this is this will shock you, a former senior director for energy and climate change in the Obama administration is going to oversee this hub, and he's going to report directly to Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. So 
uh, Yellen said in a statement that climate change presents new challenges and opportunities for the U.S. economy, um, especially if you're going to benefit from all of the spending, uh, wasteful spending and junk spending. Uh, the steep consequences of our actions demand that the Treasury Department make climate change a top priority, which is uh, just stupid. But those are the, you know, it's the world we live in now. Uh, yet they won't do any public debates, right? They, they won't do that because they know that they'd get, they'd get waxed with facts. And, um, you know, the other thing I've been saying this for a few years now, no one will take my $1,000 bet that the world's not going to end in 10 years, like they're saying. So it's, you know, they're talking about curbing emissions or whatever, uh, whatever jargon they're using. By uh, 2035, I thought we weren't going to be here. So, but yet nobody will take my bet. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So I'm gonna, I'm not a betting person, by the way, but um, I, I I'll do that bet all day with you if you'd like. Um, I'm I'm gonna bet you a thousand dollars, whoever wants to take it, that this uh, world will be here in uh, in ten years because um, it's not gonna be wiped out by climate change like they're all saying, which is just uh, ridiculous and stupid and a power grab and a money grab even more so. So, uh, and we're going to talk about this wrongly titled infrastructure spending on the other side of this uh, with my guest, Mr. David Ditch. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, the value of an objective opinion. Uh, That's a complimentary takeaway for you. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com about halfway down the page. Just click the button and you'll get an instant download to your email. Your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, as a podcast, just go to uh, to iTunes and search your financial editor. You can get uh, this episode or um, any of the other episodes in case you want to re-listen or share them if you think that's relevant. As I mentioned, we were going to be jumping into our conversation this morning. Uh, very happy to have uh, with us again a friend of the program, uh, Mr. David Ditch. He's a budget and transportation associate at the Heritage Foundation. Focuses on federal spending and fiscal policy. Um, uh, put a real nice piece together a couple weeks ago that I saw that uh, prompted our conversation today. Um, it's titled Nine Things You Need to Know About Biden's Infrastructure Spending Plan. And um, David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So um, 
It, a lot of people are talking about this, at least anybody that cares uh, about what's going on in the country. Um, and, you know, you've done a lot of uh, research and digging and, and analyzing on some of the things that have been made available to us so far. Um, and you have this piece, nine things you need to know about Biden's infrastructure spending plan. What's your overall take on uh, what we know so far about this? Um, my overall take is that it is another attempt to move uh, federal policy quite a ways to the left while disguising it behind a lot of terms that most people view positively or neutrally. So, for example, uh, last month uh, they signed into law a $1.9 trillion spending bill that was messaged as COVID-19 relief, but less than 10% of it had anything to do with health care. It had a lot more to do with bailouts and handouts for left-leaning constituent groups. This bill is messaged as being an infrastructure bill, over $2 trillion in spending, and yet the infrastructure that most people actually use, that being uh, roads and bridges, gets about 4% of the spending. And once again, there's a lot more money going towards left-wing causes. Yeah, and you know, that's really embarrassing uh, to think that they would push that out, just like they did with the uh, so-called COVID bill. Uh, this is wrongly named as well as as you pointed out. It's not infrastructure. Um, and to only have, you know, like uh, you said, less than 5% it's an embarrassment. So of these nine things, we'll go ahead and start with number one, uh, where you have uh, the title dishonest advertising. Less than 5% of spending goes, goes to roads and bridges. So elaborate on that a little bit. Where are American people going to benefit uh, from this small, small slice of true infrastructure? And th this is one of the things that absolutely blew my mind. So at first, they, they were saying $135 billion for roads. Well, then $20 billion of that is going towards measures where the federal government is going to micromanage uh, street safety across the country, which is a purely local matter and has nothing to do with actual road quality, especially highways. So then I dug into the next number, $115 billion. And I was able to find uh, something that they gave only to congressional staff. And of that amount, about a quarter of it is going to a bunch of slush funds that don't have anything to do with roads or bridges. So that's how you end up with only 4% going towards the thing that most people think of as infrastructure and the thing that is typically the focal point of federal in infrastructure policy. It is total bait and switch. Yeah. And uh, just so our listeners know, uh, bef before David Ditch uh, was in this current position, um, he was a budget analyst for the Senate Budget Committee, where he oversaw appropriations in agriculture. Uh, he also worked on the Small Business Committee um, in Congress. You know, so, David, you're used to being in the room when a lot of uh, things are being drafted and discussed and debated and um, hopefully in good faith, I can't imagine what this would look like if you were uh, a fly on the wall listening to what they're crafting. 
I mean, to be honest, if, if you're a fly on the wall, I mean, they're ta- it, there's got to be excitement in the administration because right now they're essentially getting away with it. The press coverage is almost universally favorable because the press really enjoys federal spending, and they are amazingly, given who owns a lot of these media outlets, uh, the press also tends to look very favorably on tax hikes for businesses. And if this bill goes through as as has been presented, um, it would be, I mean, it would be a much bigger uh, deal, I think, than even Obamacare. Just it's more, it's spread out across a broader spectrum of the economy where Obamacare was only about health care. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. So number two, uh, you say $2.75 trillion tax hike would uh, stunt post-pandemic economic recovery. What does that mean? It means that the administration thinks that jobs and growth come from government. I don't know how many times America and the world need to learn the lesson we get growth from the private sector. We get jobs from the private sector. FDR, back in the 30s, tried to use a tax and spend regime to dig us out of the Great Depression, and he helped to make the Great Depression great, and it dragged out for the entirety of his term in office. It's failed time and again, and the Biden administration wants to go right back to it. They want to spend a bunch of money on projects that are going to provide very little economic return, and they're going to pay for it by yanking it out of businesses. Is it going to make businesses less willing to invest, to expand operations and create jobs? And it's going to make them less likely to get started. It's going to make sure they have less money to invest in the first place. This is the exact opposite of what we should be doing when we're coming out of a big recession. Uh, David Ditch is my guest this morning. Uh, He received his M.A. in political management from George Washington University. He also holds a B.A. in economics and political science from the University of Rochester up in Rochester. And uh, he's a nearby neighbor over in uh, Virginia is where he currently resides. Um, So, you know, you're talking about FDR and the last administration and Obamacare or two administrations ago with Obamacare. And, you know, I've been, well, I guess I'm 23 and a half years into this show, and uh, we told it like it was during the Obama administration. Uh, you could kind of say, look, this guy's just a novice. He really has no political serious background. He has no private sector experience to understand, uh, you know, what puts food on the table. And he was just doing what he was told. Now we've got this administration that has over four decades, if you look at Biden, as far as uh, political experience in the room, you know, and voting on things. But he doesn't seem like he really knows what's going on either. And I just it, it's it's really scary. You know, number four of the top nine things that you point out, it's federal takeover of local responsibilities. Do you think people really understand what's what's happening right now? There, this is something that, again, 
no one in the press will ever talk about. When you when there are discussions of problems that are that exist anywhere in the country, the media defaults to saying, okay, what can the federal government do to fix this problem? Which is why the federal government has become such a bloated mess. It's completely ungovernable. Congress is completely out of its depth in trying to manage the government we have today. But again, there are always problems. The default perception is the federal government needs to be responsible for everything under the sun. It's not going to work. The country is just way too big. We should handle local problems at the local level because the people on the ground in different parts of the country know better about what is going to work for them. Policies that work in Texas are not going to work in California. California policies are not going to work in Kansas. Those policies aren't going to work in Maine. We're a country of 330 million people spread across you know, two oceans and two big borders, north and south. We shouldn't be going for one-size-fits-all solutions. This Biden spending plan wants to take over the electric grid and you know, water lines and school construction. It's exactly the wrong direction. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. We're going to take a quick pause here. We'll come back on the other side. We'll continue our discussion with Mr. David Ditch and uh, get uh, into some of these other points of this nine-point uh uh, piece that he put together as far as this uh, it's wrongly titled infrastructure because it's not so stay tuned This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And uh, also as available, uh, the program is as a podcast. Just go to iTunes and uh, you can uh, listen to it there, re-listen to it, share it, whatever you see fit. Uh, Finishing up our conversation with my guest this morning, a friend of the program, Mr. David Ditch. He's a budget and transportation associate at the Heritage Foundation. Prior to that, uh, he was a budget analyst for the United States uh, Senate Budget Committee, where he oversaw appropriations in agriculture and uh, worked on small uh, the Senate Small Business uh, Committee as well. And uh, David, you know, I'm jumping around. By the way, folks, if you want to get this piece, it's I, I highly recommend it. Um, I think you would really enjoy it, and uh, it's eye-opening. Uh, go to heritage.org, and um, it's David Ditch, D-I-T-H, but uh, it's nine things you need to know about Biden's infrastructure spending plan. So, um, you know, you talked about various issues and the overreach, as far as I'm concerned, my word, not yours, of uh, the federal government. Um, $700 billion in corporate welfare and tax credits. What's that all about? Um, just, just real quick, it's uh, D-I-T-C-H. Oh, I'm sorry, um, D-I-T-C-H. Yes. So, uh, yes. So, once again, this is $700 billion between direct handouts and tax credits 
that the Biden administration wants to direct to a, a limited number of, of industries, and he's going to give it to them and take it from other parts of the economy, from other businesses. This is 100 percent about picking winners and losers, and most of what they're trying to do is benefit the quote-unquote green sector of the economy. Now, we already have all kinds of subsidies, all kinds of rules in place to put a finger on the scale on behalf of things like solar and wind. He wants to put the whole, you know, put the whole hand down in favor of those businesses and industries. And it's something that will ultimately lead to fewer jobs and slower growth because we're going to be taking from the strongest and most productive and most profitable parts of the, the economy and giving the parts of the economy that already need subsidies. Yeah, I mean, this is just, in my mind, again, and I've said it for years and even before these ridiculous uh, things, but it's just a power grab. Um, it's a money grab. It's an elitist attitude. You know, talking about electrical vehicles, poor people can't buy electrical vehicles. It's not like, you know, you can pick one up for six grand. Um, it's just, it, again, I, I, it is what it is. It's embarrassing that they come out with these things. And um, I, it, I, our last question, we're up against the clock. Do you have any idea, and, and I know this would be probably impossible, but I'll ask it anyway, any idea how much of this money makes it back to the politicians? It's really hard to say. Um, the the thing that I view is is the most direct line from the taxpayer, the politician, is the handouts to transit agencies. And I say that because transit is first of all already subsidized by you know sixty to eighty percent in most parts of the country, and then they take the money and they give absolutely insane compensation packages to the employees. So we're talking like 150000 in New York, 140000 in Washington, D.C., 180000 plus in San Francisco. And then those transit employees are an important cog in these big city political machines. And those big city political machines are the backbone, are the political backbone of the left. Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's what's happening. I, I know you, you couldn't quantify it, but I, it's just it's amazing in my mind how much of this gets right back to them. And that's part of the, the picking the winners and the losers. I mean, Amtrak, Amtrak every year is like the U.S. Postal Service. It's getting ready to go bankrupt. Nothing ever works, no matter how much, how many billions of dollars we give them. And yet they continue to do it. So I'm totally convinced that they know that money's coming back to them one way or the other. Uh, the title is Nine Things You Need to Know About Biden's Infrastructure Spending Plan. David Ditch, D-I-T-C-H, is our guest. This morning he wrote the piece. It's excellent. It's only like a four-page read. Uh, you'll learn a lot. And uh, you can go to heritage.org. And, David, thank you for taking time to be with us. And I look forward to you uh, coming back again. Thank you very much. All right. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Uh, again, heritage.org, nine things you need to know about Biden's infrastructure uh, spending plan, where, again, we all know it's not infrastructure, just like it was in COVID. Uh, this is all Trojan horse garbage. And uh, we'll continue to, to basically just say the truth here on the program for sure. Um, and uh, I will talk with you on the Morning News Express Monday mornings live. 
oh, excuse me, Monday through Friday mornings live, 5.56.57.50, when Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick and I talk. And um, we'll be back here next Saturday for another Your Financial Editor program. So I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com news radio 930 wfmd frederick a connoisseur media radio station seven o'clock